Hi, welcome to Trained. At Nike, we believe that greatness isn't born, it's trained. And that means more than just a workout. Each episode, we'll bring you conversations with leading experts in what we call the five facets of fitness. Movement, recovery, nutrition, mindset, and sleep. I'm Ryan Flaherty, Senior Director of Performance at Nike. I train some of the world's best athletes, like Russell Wilson, Brooks Kepka, and Saquon Barkley. Today, we're talking about how to design habits that you can stick with and why small steps are the fastest path to change. You're listening to Trained, presented by Nike. As we do a behavior and feel successful, yes, it helps wire in the habit and motivates us to do more of that, but that feeling of success, no matter how tiny, helps you think of yourself in a new way. Let's say they tidy up one thing in their kitchen every night and they feel successful about that. Then they start thinking about themselves, I'm the type of person who tidies up. And that identity, that emerging identity, then has ripple effects. And those ripple effects happen to almost everybody. And it happens within days. That's BJ Fogg, a behavior scientist, professor, and director of the Stanford Behavior Design Lab. BJ is also author of the book, Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. At his Stanford lab, BJ and his colleagues study human behavior and methods to change it. He has spent his career looking closely at behavior in order to break it down to its most essential components and restructure them. His foundational discovery is called BMAP. B, behavior, happens when M, motivation, A, ability, and P, prompt, come together at the same moment. If that sounds like a formula, it's probably because BJ started his career in computer science and linguistics. This has informed how he sees human behavior, something that can be changed through clear inputs. While some of us worry about what technology is doing to us, BJ is optimistic that it can help. Whether it's by using technology as a cue or imitating what gets us addicted to apps in the first place, BJ is confident that we have the tools to change our behavior within us so long as we start small. I met BJ about a year before we got together for this interview. And after that initial meeting, I did a deep dive into his work and had a chance to put his concepts into practice right away. Many of the athletes I work with are not only under pressure to perform on the field, but they are in the biggest spotlight of their lives. If they've just gone pro, it means their sport has now become their job and entire identity. The stakes are higher than ever. They represent entire cities, and they're making major business and financial decisions for the first time. And that's on top of the fact that what they need to focus on isn't any of that. It's their game. They have to perform at their highest level, more frequently, and with less recovery than at any other time in their lives. And it gets stressful. I was working with a group of athletes who were exposed to this kind of stress and had a lot coming at them. I knew that incorporating some kind of mindfulness practice into their routine would be helpful. Meditation has been shown to help performance, concentration, and bring general peace of mind. But it's not easy to tell someone in the biggest pressure cooker of their life to just stop and meditate. But I knew that if they could adopt meditation, it would help them to make sense of all the opportunities that were coming their way. So I made it part of the warm-ups we were already doing. I always start with a 15-minute dynamic warm-up, but this time around, I had them do our usual warm-up followed by a short meditation. They got used to it right away, because I built it on top of something they were already doing. This is a crucial part of creating a new habit. 
Building off of something you're already doing and are doing successfully. There's no score in a warm-up, and the drills aren't things you can do well or not. It's just doing it. So by the time my athletes were on the bench to start the meditation, they were in a successful mindset, and we added on to the meditation and made it longer. And a year later, these athletes are still meditating. BJ's work helped me design that change, and so I'm glad to have him on the show. BJ will explain why that feeling of success is so important to building habits and other methods you can use to bring a new habit to your life. Change is never easy, but it's always interesting. So if there are some changes you might be thinking of implementing in your life, get them to the front of your mind as we start the interview, because I know something BJ shares will apply to them. So now let's get to the interview. Well, thank you, BJ, for taking the time to, to join us today. I really appreciate it. Hey, Ryan, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So I just wanted to jump in with you and, and get an idea of how did you get started in, in your interest in, in behavior change? And when did you get started in computer science and technology? Well, I was, <laughs> when you talk about uh, my higher education, I did a degree in English and then I did one in linguistics. And then I got very oh, wow. interested in rhetor rhetoric you know, which is about using language to persuade. And then I moved to France for a summer. I decided, hey, I'm going to just get immersed, learn French by immersing myself. And it was there that I picked up these little books. They're kind of like, oh, Cliff Notes, but it's French version. <laughs> and I started reading about rhetoric and the rhetoricians in French. And it was there in the south of France, reading in French. Where I was like, oh, my gosh, this stuff, this rhetoric is going to happen in technology there's going to be an overlap here. Hmm. And I thought, well, man, that's what I want to do my doctorate in. And then ended up at Stanford and uh, doing as be, shifted from the humanities and became a behavior scientist, uh, an experimental psychologist, um, essentially, and then ran experiments back in the 1990s about how computers might influence our attitudes and behaviors. So even though I taught for computer science and a lot of my students are technical, uh, my background, you know, I could do hypercard back in the day, but I'm not, I'm not a computer scientist. I, I am a, a social scientist. Got you. How would you, so giving, like giving people a little bit of a background really quick for that may not know that are listening, how would you describe behavior and behavior change for some of us who aren't, you know, students of it or haven't studied it? <laughs> That's quite a big question. Well, I know. I'm sorry. I'll just give a snapshot uh, describing in terms of my model, the, the behavior model. So behavior happens when three things come together at the same time. When somebody's motivated to do that behavior, when they're able to do the behavior, and then there's a prompt. And the prompt is anything that says, do this now. And that's when behavior happens. And that can be a behavior you like, a behavior you don't like. It could be a habit. It could be a one-time behavior. It could be any type of, any type of human behavior uh, is a result of those three components coming together. And that solve that finally came together for me in 2007 uh, was a big deal. When the final piece popped in, hmm. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like an answer to a riddle. And it seems, you know, behavior seems so complicated, just like a riddle seems complicated until you see the answer. And it's like, wow, can it really be this easy? And huh. the answer is, yeah. Once you start seeing the world through the lens of the behavior model, you're able to understand your own behavior, other people's behavior, and so on. And you can design for behaviors quite efficiently because you're not guessing there's a system to it. 
I mean, you've developed so many concepts in behavior science, so I want to go through a few of them for people that are listening. Uh, you developed the FOG behavior model. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that is and how you created it? Yeah, so the behavior model is that fundamental model I talked about before, where behavior happens when motivation, ability, and prompt come together at the same moment. There's a visual way of understanding that where you lay it out in two axes. And what that visual representation, there's a curved line that I call the action line. And what that action line shows is that motivation and ability have a compensatory relationship. Now, that's a mouthful to say compensatory. What it means is they work like teammates. So if there's a behavior, let's say washing your dog, um, and your motivation is low to wash the dog, then your ability has to be really high or has to be really easy to do. Where on the other hand, if your motivation's high, if, if the motivation is very strong, then it can be hard to do. So motivation and ability can... I mean, trading off is not quite the right word. They act as teammates. And if one is weak, the other has to be strong and vice versa. And that is, um, wow, that's one of the, the key things that people learn in my work is that if a behavior is hard to do, like working out for an hour a day or going to CrossFit or what have mm -hmm. you, your motivation has to be high to do it. If your mm -hmm. motivation is not high, you cannot do a hard behavior. However, if the behavior is really easy to do, then your motivation doesn't have to be high. Like if watching my dog takes like 10 seconds, I don't have to be super motivated to do it. Now, right. I might be motivated, but, um, and so you can see the relation, there is a relationship between motivation and ability, and that's in part what my behavior model shows. And that opened up understanding about how do you design for hard behaviors and oh my gosh, if habits are super, super easy, guess what? You don't need lots of motivation to create that habit. And that's what opened the door to the tiny habits method. That's, yeah, super interesting. And I, you know, I always say this, but training, working out is, is hard. It's not, it's not fun for a lot of people. <laughs> for most, I would say 95% of people that yeah. do exercise, it is a difficult habit to create. How can someone work on improving and increasing that motivation to want to do that, that, that difficult yeah. thing? So in my work in behavior design, first and foremost, when you're looking at something like working out every day, what you would do first and foremost is you would find a workout ideally that you like to do, something you're mm -hmm. already motivated to do. In other words, you don't just pick some exercise you hate and then try to get yourself <laughs> motivated later. That's the wrong approach in behavior design. For example, in my life, uh, I live about half the time in Maui. I love... Uh, stand-up paddle surfing. So I serve every morning and I love it. There, I don't have to, you know, try to get myself out of bed at the crack of dawn to go surfing. I am waiting for the, uh, the slightest bit of light to emerge so I can <laughs> go out and surf. And so for me, that's an awesome match and I love it. And I work really hard out there, but it doesn't feel like work. It feels like absolute play. So if you can, first and foremost, find something that you love. Now, I tried prone surfing and I tried it for three years in a row and broke a rib and separated a rib. And it was <laughs> like, okay, this is not for me. And so then I said, no, I'll, I'll do stand-up, uh, stand-up surfing. And I love it. And so I'm out there every morning in Maui and there's a group of people always out there. And I wasn't saying I'm addicted to this, but that's what they say. It's like, oh man, I'm addicted. And I'm like, uh, yeah, they don't know I'm a behavior scientist. And I'm like, mm, yeah. And I know what it is, Ryan. I know what, I know what has addicted me to that. <laughs> when you go to catch a wave, there's a moment 
when you know you've caught it, there's almost like this slipping feeling where it's like, mm -hmm. boom, I've caught it. And that's like this, just like boom, feeling of success. It's like, man, I got this wave and I didn't fall and so on. <laughs> so first and foremost, pick something you love. Now, if you have to do an exercise you don't love, then there's other ways to think about motivation and sustaining that. So what would they be? If you were to say if someone who didn't like something, what, do you have any recommendation for them? Um, a few things. One is uh, groups, working out with groups or being part of a team okay. uh, is a good way to go. You know this. Um, sometimes contests and having something you're working toward. So like I'm a competitive swimmer, so I will do some exercises I don't love, but I'm doing that in anticipation of a competition. So that can help. And then, so both of those things are motivators. Another way to look at motivation, Ryan, I mean, you have things that motivate you, but then you have things that demotivate you. Mm -hmm. um, and so an another thing is to look at a way that you can remove anything that's causing you fear or pain in order to get you over the action line. And uh, listening to music can do that. It can distract you from some pain of the workout or watching TV or being amused in other ways. And so those aren't motivators to do the exercise. They, they're distractions. And mm. so it helps you keep going if you didn't have the music or the TV to amuse you or whatever you're doing. And the examples I'm giving, I'm sure, are really common and everyone understands these. But the way they work, you can map them to the behavior model and you can see they, some work as motivators and some work to take away the demotivators. Right. And what we really have when you look at any behavior, you have, and you can think of motivation like vectors. I'm going into like the science physics mode where you have motivation that's pushing you up as a vector or a set of vectors. And then you have motivation that's suppressing or demotivators that's suppressing. And you can think of that as vectors pushing against each other. And so if you can remove the demotivators, what's motivating you, which is often hope, uh, like, oh, I hope I'm going to swim better in the meet. I hope I'm going to look better. I hope I'm going to, you know, sleep better if I work out. Then the hope can emerge and sustain harder um, workouts, basically. You have something called the, the FOG behavior grid, um, where you categorize mm -hmm. types of behaviors and the strategies that work to change them. Um, can you walk yeah. us through those categories broadly? Yeah, so surprisingly enough, uh, there has never been uh, a taxonomy of different types of behavior change. And I tried to get some graduate students in Europe to create this taxonomy because I thought this would be so great, you know, you can publish <laughs> this. And, and, you know, I was over there um, and coming home on the plane, I realized they weren't going to do it. So I took out the barf bag and I sketched it out on the barf bag. It's like, okay, let's think about the taxonomy here. So I simplified the 35-cell uh, grid that I'd created to 15. And 15 is, is great. You know, it, it doesn't account for everything, but pretty much. And within the behavior grid, there are 15 ways behaviors can change. Some of those behaviors are habits, starting habits. Some of them are stopping habits. Some of them are one-time behaviors. Some of them are limited time period behaviors. So if you envision uh, a grid that's a five-by-three grid, and within that, each behavior has a name. So a green dot behavior is a, a new behavior you do one time. Green is new, dot is one time. Where a blue path behavior is like a habit. So blue means it's familiar and path means you do it from now on. So I named each of these 15 cells. So now we have a, 
a word for each of these 15 types of behavior. And I see it kind of like the periodic table of elements uh, where you have like, here are the elements and they all have names and the rows mean things, the columns mean thing, mean something. And it's the same thing for the behavior grid. It's like the periodic table, but of behaviors. But then you also have something called the fog method. And can you tell, talk to us yeah. what that is and what are the steps there? So the steps, there's three. First of all, uh, when you want somebody to do a behavior, whether you want leaders to be better or you want people to save more money or you want one of your clients to exercise more, number one, you need to match them with the specific behavior. Not an abstraction, but something specific. So rather than saying, you know, do cardio for an hour a day, match them with something very specific like, you know, work on air assault or walk on the treadmill or, you know, walk around your block, you know, for 30 minutes twice a day at this pace, you know, three and a half miles an hour, three miles an hour, whatever, whatever you want them to do. So one, match them with a very specific behavior. Now in step one, you also want to match them with the behavior they actually want to do. Okay. Yeah. Ideally. Step two, then it's how do I make this behavior really easy to do? So now we're talking about ability in my behavior model. For example, here where I live, I've, t I've taken one of the garages and I've turned it into essentially a mini CrossFit gym. And that has made working out for me really easy to do. So that's here in California. Uh, in Maui, it's really easy to surf. Uh, I don't have that here in California and I'm too much of a wimp with the cold water. So <laughs> instead, I, I, and it took years to get it right. I've always wanted this. Uh, it's like a gym that is exactly designed for me with a pull-up bar exactly at my height and everything that I want there. So I've made it really easy to work out uh, whatever work that I'm doing. I have um, a slack line for balance and so on. So I do various types of things and they're all exercises that I like. I even like aerosol, surprisingly. And I like wall balls. People hate those. I like them. <laughs> and then the final thing is the third step is to make sure there's a prompt. That's the reminder, the cue, the call mm -hmm. to action, any of those things that says do this behavior now. So the three steps are match people with really specific behavior, make it as easy as possible to do, and then make sure there's a prompt. Gotcha. Can you give me an example, like a real world example of that that you think does a really good job of that? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a good example, one that I like. I'm wearing a watch right now that will prompt me, I guess when it senses that I am, um, not as relaxed as I should be, and it prompts me to do breathing exercises. Hmm. So it's a very specific, it doesn't just say breathe better, it's very specific. It uh, makes it easy to do because there's uh, a tactile signal that says inhale, it doesn't say it, but you know, it indicates inhale, exhale, inhale. So it's guiding me, it's making it easier to breathe. And then, you know, there's an initial prompt. And then as I'm doing the breathing, it's saying, you know, essentially uh, indicating when to inhale and exhale and so on. So that's a really simple example that I think a lot of people know about. Um, but it's, you know, it matches me with a specific behavior. It makes it easy to do. And it's prompting me to start. Gotcha. But also during the breathing uh, during that session, when to do each thing, which is both a combination of making it easier and also prompting me. Got it. And I've said this for years. I started teaching Tiny Habits in 2011. And the first thing in Tiny Habits since then, and even now, is there's three ways to create lasting change. 
One is an epiphany. Guess what? You can't suddenly have an epiphany, so rule that out. But they happen, and if you have one, great. But you can't design for it. You can't make somebody else have an epiphany. So then <laughs> you're left with two other ways. One is to redesign your environment so you can change your behavior, other people's behavior, by redesigning the environment. Sometimes that's really unsettling. Um, then the third way to change is to take baby steps. And that's what Tiny Habits is all about. How do you change in these small, incremental, long-term ways? We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, BJ will talk to us about how to use the concepts of behavior change to improve your mindset and why making one small change will lead to others. If you're a trainer, join a community of trainers looking to make fitness better for everyone. Learn from leading experts in movement, recovery, mindset, nutrition, and sleep, and get an exclusive 30% discount on Nike gear. Apply at nike.com slash ntcpro. What are some strategies to start a new healthy habit? And maybe something like, you know, the, the hot topic right now is, is meditation, right? So if someone yeah. wanted to start a new healthy habit of, of meditating once a day for 10 minutes, could you just break it down step by step of how someone could start that? First and foremost, I would look at that idea, that thing you have, like, I want to meditate. And I would say, well, geez, why do I really want to meditate? And you may find that um, you want to reduce your stress. And mm -hmm. in that case, I would say, well, look at other ways you might reduce your stress. So if people pause for a little bit, sometimes we think, oh, I want to lose weight. Well, is it really you want to lose weight or do you want to have more energy or do you want to sleep better or do you want to look better in your clothes? And if you can clarify the aspiration, so that's the first step in behavior design, is what is it that I'm really going for here? And in the case of if you thought you wanted to do meditation and you really want to reduce your stress, then I would have you explore other ways. You know, your meditation is one of those, but what else can you do to reduce your stress? You could play with your dog, you could go out to nature, you could uh, listen to your favorite music, you could dance and so on. And you may find there's a different habit that's a better match for you than meditation. Mm. And then you should do that different habit. So let's assume that meditation really is what you want. So then what you would do is you would say, well, what's going to make meditation hard for me? Is it that I lack time? Is it that I like money? Is it that I like energy? Or uh, does it take too much mental capacity? So, so what you do then is you try to make it as easy as possible to meditate. So notice we're going back to the fog method, right? What's the behavior? Mm -hmm. Then it's how do I make it really easy to do? And for meditation, you might set up a space where you meditate. You might learn different ways of meditating. So skilling up is one way to make a behavior easier to do. When the more skilled you are at it, the, easy, the easier it is to. You might get a guide or a coach to make it easier to do. I mean, this is one reason that I love group yoga is I do not have to think. I just go in and I just follow directions. <laughs> it's like one of the few times in my life where I don't have to make decisions. I just follow directions. So a coach or a guide can help you. And then another way to make it easier to do is to scale back the behavior so it's super tiny. So rather than meditating for 30 minutes, you might meditate for three or you might even just at the just meditate for three breaths. So that makes it easy. So you explore different ways of making it easier to do. 
Yep. And then the last step is to find where does this fit net? It's not the last step in all of behavior design, but last step I'll, I'll share here in the summary is where does this fit naturally in my day? I remember talking to you the first time you'd used the example of brushing your teeth. Um, every time you brushed your teeth, you did something. Or every time you went to the restroom, you did something, um, attaching it to an already existing behavior. Um, and that was a light bulb for me because then doing that, it's like every time I want to do something new with an athlete, I always attach it to something we do already every day. So it just kind of you know, signals to them or prompts yeah. them that we're going to do it. So that, 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 that's been super effective for me in the training that I do. So thank you for that. So many people say mistakenly that repetition is how you create habits. That is not accurate. Repetition correlates with habits, but it's not the thing that creates them. Mm. And people keep making this mistake, uh, and it misleads people. And so a big part of my work is to help people understand what really creates habits and, and, and what creates habits. It's the emotion you feel while you're doing the behavior or immediately after. So a chapter in Tiny Habits is all about this, and it's titled Emotions Create Habits habits. So if you do a behavior and you're feeling awkward or stupid or unsuccessful, it will not wire in as a habit. And often when people meditate, they are sitting there like, okay, I'm sitting here, I'm meditating. And all I recognize is how busy my mind is. Mm -hmm. So they're not feeling successful. And so that makes it very difficult to create a habit out of something you feel unsuccessful on. If you do a behavior and feel successful, it's that feeling that wires the habit into your brain. And so the more successful you feel as you do the behavior or immediately after, it depends on what the behavior is, then that's it, it, it's, if you feel a strong positive emotion it's the intensity of the emotion and the immediacy of the emotion that mm. wires that new behavior into your brain and makes it become a habit. Yeah. For those of us listening that are trainers, that are coaches, that are parents um, or accountability partners, what, what's the most effective way to, to help people feel that success? How do they help them feel successful? Yeah. You know, it's just four words. Help people feel successful. But the way you do it well, there's so many ways. One way is to, I mean, if I'm helping somebody else change, well, let's take my partner, for example. So he, he grew up doing physical labor and he wasn't really used to working out. You know, I grew up going to the gym and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. but he didn't. And so for him, the idea of like actually going in the gym and working out seemed crazy. It's like, no, I should be digging a hole. I should be building fences or something like that. <laughs> well, uh, he finally found that rowing on a certain rowing machine he loved. I, that's not what I would have matched him with, but he figured out he loved it. So when he rows on that machine, I point out, you know, good form. When he comes in after doing the workout in the garage, I say, how'd it go? Good for you. When he tells me that, oh my gosh, I was 10 seconds faster on my routine today, I respond. I don't mm. respond fakely. I just, I just let my genuine, I pay attention. <laughs> And I let my genuine emotion come through. So I want to add, talk about a bit of the inverse of that. So instead of start, starting new behaviors or new tiny habits, how would you recommend somebody stop an old negative behavior? So maybe it's, you know, yeah. negative internal self-talk or, by, you know, biting their nails Much or more eating bad diet. Yeah, I'll just start with this. A lot of what people are telling you in the blogs and whatever are wrong. If it was so <laughs> easy to end. Yeah, really. And there's very... 
prominent books out there. They're misleading people. And that, you know, I'm kind of like Mr. Rogers. People think that a lot, but this is where I get cranky. When uh, people set others up to fail, like, oh, you can stop this habit if you just understand this. You're going to be able to stop this bad habit. And they can't. Guess what? They blame themselves. And that is, that's unethical. That is just wrong. Mm-hmm. So creating habits is relatively easy. And tiny habits is the best, fastest, most fun way to do that. And it's pretty straightforward. Um, stopping habits some can be really easy to stop. You can stop a workout habit pretty easily. You can stop the habit of going to work easily. But there are some habits that are challenging. And there's a whole range in between. And even the wording break a bad habit, I call out and I say, that's the wrong word. And it sets the wrong expectation. Break implies that if you put a lot of force in one moment, boom, it's done. You've broken it. That's not how these kinds of behaviors work. And so I am talking about it as you untangle bad habits. And that sets a much better expectation. It's like, it's a process. Even changing our language from break to untangle is helpful. In my chapter on stopping unwanted behaviors, I really stepped up there because so many of the books out there that claim to help you stop habits do not. So I just turned up the volume on that chapter and I created what I call the Behavior Change Master Plan. And it's really for people that are trying to untangle these persistent habits that are making them less happy and healthy. And there's three phases. And each phase, <laughs> I being the systems geek, each phase is this flowchart. And they would not let me put the flowchart in the actual book. But I did <laughs> get it in the appendices. So there's, there's like a detailed step-by-step flowchart for each of the three phases. Phase one is create a bunch of new good habits. Okay, so that's, and if you've got a persistent bad habit, boom, focus on creating a bunch of good habits first. And sometimes that pushes out the bad habits. And if it doesn't, then you go to phase two. Phase two is designed to stop the unwanted behavior. And you do that by making it harder to do, removing the prompt or removing motivation, just stopping. If that doesn't work, then you go to phase three, which is swapping, replacing it. Now, so many people will tell you to start with the swapping and replacing. That's not where you start. That's phase three. That's after the other things haven't worked. And so that's the overall... Uh, sequencing and each one I've mapped out in, ex- in some people think excruciating detail. I think it's exhilarating detail <laughs> in these, these flowcharts, step by step. If this works, keep go here. If this doesn't do this, and there's three phases, but overall that's, that's, the, uh, that's the plan. That's awesome. Yeah. And I just initially, I was just in my mind thinking about phase one, you know, as simple as it sounds, if you're, if you're struggling to s- stick to a healthy diet, you just by exercising, you're naturally just going to want to not eat, you know, yes. bad foods. It's, it's just, it kind of is the way it goes. As we do a behavior and feel successful, yes, it helps wire in the habit and motivates us to do more of that. But that feeling of success, no matter how tiny, helps you think of yourself in a new way. And I've seen this in tiny habits since the beginning. As people do a behavior, let's say they tidy up one thing in their kitchen every night and they feel successful about that. Then they start thinking about themselves. 
I'm the type of person who tidies up. And that identity, that emerging identity, then has ripple effects. The second thing that happens when people do new habits is they develop skills of change. So behavior change is a skill. And in Tiny Habits, I map out the five categories of skills and I, I show the skills within each category. So as you create new habits, whether you know you're creating skills or not, you are. And mm. those skills can then transfer to harder habits or unwinding bad habits. So for that and other reasons is absolutely the right place to start. Uh, and a quest to work on a difficult, you know, bad habit that you have, absolutely start with creating a bunch of new ones. And they can be teeny tiny. They don't have to be big ones. Mm -hmm. They can be really small and just help, you know, let yourself feel successful even about the tiniest of successes. All right, Dr. Fogg. So how does tiny habits turn into something that becomes permanent in people's lives? Well, tiny is absolutely the best way to start for most types of changes. The, the, the best way, the best analogy for habits is plants and like, you know, flowers and bushes and trees. And, and the best way to think about your collection of habits is like a garden. And as you are creating a garden, uh, sure, you can take a big oak tree and try to transplant it from one spot to the other. But what works better is to start things small and find the right spot and grow them. That's exactly how you should be thinking about your habits. Uh, habits work a lot like plants. And this, this garden analogy, if you can, th you know, if you've done gardening or are familiar with how it works, just think about that and relate it to habits. And so if you start something really small, like a seed, a, a very, very tiny version of the habit, and you find the right spot for it and keep it nurtured, it will grow naturally. Thank you for the time, BJ. I really appreciate it. This was awesome. Ryan, thank you so much. It was so interesting to hear BJ talk about the science of behavior and habit. He had so many useful tips for behavior change, but when it comes to goals, there's one thing that he helped me see in a new light. If you aren't taking into account how behavior change works, focusing on a goal puts excess pressure on you because it has an end and it's binary and you can fail. Behavior change and goals are different. If you want to change a behavior, don't think of it as a goal. After all, it's not finite. You want this to be for life. So break it down into smaller actions. For example, if your goal is to get eight hours of sleep every night, your action might be to be in bed at a certain time. That's it. You don't even have to be asleep. Just make sure you're in your bed. And when you make it, congratulate yourself on that success. It might feel over the top at first, but it shouldn't. As BJ points out, we've been coached not to congratulate ourselves on small success. But the science says the opposite. It works. So try it. Trained is produced by Nike Training Club. If you're looking to take your training to the next level, check out the Nike Training Club app. In it, you'll find holistic guidance and free workouts designed by Nike experts. Or go even further with our premium subscription service, NTC Premium, at $14.99 a month, available now in the US. With NTC Premium, you can get guidance from start to finish with programs designed and led by Nike Master Trainers, plus immersive guided workouts and in-depth nutrition and wellness content. Go check it out. That's Nike Training Club app, available on both Android and iOS. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with an interview with Shaquem Griffin, linebacker for the Seattle Seahawks, where we talk about his positive mindset, approaches to recovery, 
and what he finds meaningful about the spotlight. This is Trained. Talk to you soon. Consult your doctor before engaging in an exercise program of any kind, especially if you have a medical condition. Use good judgment and common sense about your own fitness level and ability when engaging in a training program. If something doesn't feel right, stop immediately and seek medical attention as necessary.